Hi, everybody. My name is Pat, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> I'm really glad to be here. We've had such a good time uh, this weekend. You know, we have the opportunity to, to do, you know, a fair amount of this, and it's not always fun. Um, it's not always, you're not always talking to a room full of enthusiastic people, believe me. Um, this is really, it's special here, and, I, and I'm really glad to be a part of it. Uh, and I'm sure it's going to be a huge success and go on for hundreds of years, because it's it's great. It's really great. Um, I, uh, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> I uh, drank the first time when I was 13. The reason I drank that particular night is I was at a party, and I wanted to fit in. Um, presumably, I did fit in. I was there with my friends, but I never felt quite, um, you know, I've always felt like I didn't quite fit. I've always felt like you all had some key to getting along that I didn't get. Uh, I certainly didn't know how to talk to people. Uh, social chit-chat is something that I never uh, had been able to master. Uh, after hello, how are you, I was kind of stumped for something to st- say. And I'm the kind of a person when I, I'm in a conversation with you, while you're talking, I'm busy thinking about what I'm going to say when you pause, which is it's hard to have, like, any kind of meaningful exchange when you're... Uh, I used to describe myself as being incredibly shy. And then when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, you told me that's another word for self-obsession. Uh, I like shy better. <laughs> shy implies there's nothing I can do about it, you know. And uh, it's an interesting thing. A few years ago, I... Um, <clears throat> Was, had gone to a meeting uh, sort of locally to, to speak, and I, I didn't know exactly where it was, so I left real early, so I'd be sure to get there in, in plenty of time. And, and, of course, because I'd left all this extra time, I drove directly to it, had no trouble finding it, and I was there really, really early, and I thought, well, I don't want to go in because then I'll have to talk to people that I don't know, um, you know, for a long period of time. So I, I had this really good book, and it happened that I had this really good book in the car, and I thought, well, I'll just sit in the car, and I'll, you know, read my book for a while, and then I'll, I'll go in later. Well, the Unfortunately, the secretary of the meeting saw me drive up and just came running over. Oh, come in, come in. We're so glad you're here and have some coffee. And I thought, oh, damn, i got to go in. And I have to talk to people for however long, an hour and a half or something. I went in and I got a cup of coffee and I started talking to this gentleman who was standing there drinking coffee. And it seemed like that before I knew it, they were um, banging the gavel for the meeting to start. And I thought, God, how can that be? I've, I've been in a conversation, a real conversation with somebody for all this, a stranger, for all this time and didn't even notice. That's an, an absolute impossibility. It really... I was just astounded, and, and I, when I was driving home from the meeting, I kept thinking about it. I was driving home from the meeting that night, and, and it finally struck me. The reason that that was possible is for the last 21 and a half years now, um, maybe 17 years at that time, but whatever it was, I had been, in fact, doing things, living life, having experiences, doing things. Therefore, I had something to bring to a conversation. Um, prior to coming to Alcoholics Anonymous, what I did was think about myself and drink, essentially. And so there's not much that you can bring to a, a meaningful conversation, you know. Um, this, you know, this guy and I were talking, he had done this, and then that struck off a thought in me that I had done this, and, and that's, um, that's what happens when you get out into the mainstream of life. What an exciting um, revelation that was to me. Uh, anyway, I, uh, so I'm at this party, I'm 13, I, I, uh, somebody offered me a rum and coke. I had no feeling strongly one way or the other about drinking or not drinking. I just wanted to fit in. They were drinking, so of course I drank. I'm glad they weren't um, shooting heroin that night or... You know, um, jumping off of roofs because I'm sure I would have done that too. I just want you to like me. And so I drank this rum and coke and, um, the magic happened. Uh, now I didn't go, Eureka, I have found it. But essentially that's how I behaved from that moment forward. I, you know, I relaxed. I, um, more than relaxed, I like to say. I talked to people at that party uh, quite comfortably. I felt witty and uh, it seemed to me that I was the life of the party. Um, I remember I got up and danced and felt quite uh, not at all self-conscious about, uh, you know, being in front of people. And I just felt wonderful. 
Now, I also uh, blacked out, passed out, and woke up the next morning in bed with a Marine that I didn't know, which wasn't uh, exactly how I'd meant the night to go. I'm a nice girl from Newport Beach, and nobody in my crowd was behaving like this. Uh, nobody. And I felt very, very bad the next day. Uh, I felt guilty. and it, Well, you know, I had mixed emotions now. On the one hand, it seemed to me that my 13-year-old girlfriends were sort of looking up to me now. That, You know, I, I felt like I was sort of a pace setter in our little group, you know. And, and I kind of liked that. But on the other hand, of course, I felt what you might imagine a person would feel, uh, uh, you know, under those uh, events. I felt guilty and ashamed, and I was terrified that I would get pregnant. I just, whatever bad feelings you might imagine, I, I certainly had them. And yet I drank again at the very next possible opportunity. At the very next possible opportunity that there was to pick up a drink, I took it. I was apparently willing to pay whatever price there was to drink from the gate. Um, and, and again, I say apparently because I, I certainly didn't think any of this out. Any kind of insight into my behavior or the way I was living at the time that, that you might hear, you know, from my mouth this morning, believe me, I did not have it at the time. Any insight that I got, um, I thought I was going to get insight when I took my inventory. I thought I was going to come away with, like, great, you know, revelations about When I got insight is when I started sponsoring women. I started seeing... Um, myself in, in these women. You know, I started hearing myself in, in their stories and the, in the terrible things they were telling me. And I, I think, oh, my God, that's just disgusting. And I think, oh, I did that too, didn't I? And, <laughs> and I really started getting this um, this clear picture of, of who I was. But anyway, I uh, so I became, um, from that point, I guess you'd say a periodic drinker, mostly because I did not have access to alcohol every day. I believe um, that if I'd have had access to alcohol every day, I probably would have been drinking it every day. Certainly as soon as I did have access, you know, I, in other words, I drank whenever I could. Um, I, up until the point of that first drunk, I was an A student. I went to church on Sunday. I was very involved in a uh, church youth group. I did all of those things because they made me feel good. I, that was the kind of a person I had been raised to be. It's the kind of person I wanted to be. I, it was not that somebody else was imposing moral values on me that I didn't agree with. I, I wanted to be a decent, good person. I wanted to grow up and get married and stay married to the per- same person forever and have some kids and go to the PTA and church and work in the garden and, and be you know, a regular person. Um, after that, within six months after that first drunk, I was getting C's and D's in school. I dropped out of that church youth group. I only uh, went to church at all when my parents dragged me kicking and screaming and insisted that I go. Uh, my life changed completely. My circle of friends changed completely. I started hanging around with people, obviously, who drank and, and, and behaved much as I did. Um, <clears throat> my parents could see that something was wrong. Um, I don't, they did not know that I was drinking, but they could see that something was definitely radically um, wrong with me, and, and uh, they sent me away to boarding school for my last couple of years of uh, high school uh, with the thought that a, you know, a strongly disciplined environment would be helpful, and it was. Um, I, I respond well uh, to uh, structure and, and discipline, as it turns out. I, I believe that's why I, I um, love my home group of Alcoholics Anonymous so much. It is very structured, and, and uh, you know, we're expected to um, follow our sponsor's strong suggestions, and, and, uh, and I do well. And I, I, I say I hate this, I hate this, but, but in fact, that is where I um, perform the best. And so I uh, graduated high school, and I started college um, locally, and uh, I got married a year after, uh, after, my, after being in college for a year. Uh, I got married because um, he asked. Uh, I really, I've searched my heart over the years. Surely there's a better reason in there somewhere. There just isn't. Um, I, he's not even the guy I liked the most at the time, but he's the one who asked. Um, now, I, was, I must have been 17 years old when he asked me to marry him. This is not over the hill by anybody's standards. And yet, I remember feeling tremendous relief that somebody had asked. 
Um, I, I had no self-worth. I didn't know that, but, but I, I had none. And so we got married, and, and I felt uh, I knew it was a bad mistake. I remember walking down the aisle on my dad's arm thinking, boy, is this a bad mistake. <laughs> Huge church wedding, hundreds of people, lots of my parents' money was spent on that occasion. And I just felt um, terrible. And yet I marched right down there and said, I do. Um, so now there, there we are in wedded bliss. And, you know, um, we never really fought. We never, um, we were married for six months. And uh, we never really had an argument that I can recall. I just, uh, in retrospect, I can see that I was incredibly restless, irritable, and discontent. We had very little money. And so we, and we hung around with them. When we were dating, we had these friends who were all young married couples. And none of them had much money. And it all seemed sort of glamorous to me. They lived in these little hovels as it turns out and they look kind of cute when when I wasn't living in one and um it just all seems so I don't know grown up and wonderful now I'm one of them and um it turns out when you're when you don't have much money you can't drink much and um we used to drink these things we used to, we used to take wine and then dilute it with I can't believe we ruined good wine like this dilute it with seven up so it would you know like stretch further well I mean you get no, like no buzz what so you have to drink you know 27 gallons of this stuff to feel anything and <laughs> So no wonder I was restless, irritable, and discontent. I needed a drink is what I needed. And uh, and I left. Um, I left the marriage. You know, it's funny. I, I probably would have stayed married to him forever just because I don't like confrontation much. And I, it, it's inconceivable inconceivable to me that I would have, uh, you know, come home from work one day and, and looked him in the eye and said, um, you know what, honey, I, I really don't love you and never did. And, and so I'm out of here. I mean, I cannot even imagine uh, uh, getting to such a point. Uh, but but other events occurred, which sort of gave me the the back door out, which is the way I always take if, if there is a back door. My, I, I grew up with uh, one sibling, a, an older brother who was three years older than me, who was, you know, like my hero. And um, he was in the Navy. when I At the time that I got married, he was in the Navy, and he was killed in sort of a tragic accident in the Navy. And uh, it was the worst thing that had ever happened to me in my life. Uh, he had uh, – his ship was in Japan, and uh, he, this explosion occurred on board his ship, and he was very, very badly injured. My parents were notified that um, that he had been injured, and uh, – it was, I think, a month from the time that he was injured until the time he actually died. But so the, the Navy Department, whoever does this sort of thing, was updating my parents, I guess, daily with, you know, how his condition was and, and so on. And um, and I was sending him cards and letters pretty much every day. And one day I sent him this card, um, one of these studio cards that are intended to be funny, I guess. Um, on the front it said something to the effect of, uh, heard you were a... Heard you were ailing, but not to worry. And then you opened it up, and on the inside it said, "Only the only the good die young." Now, it seemed real funny at the time that I sent it. I sent it off, and then we got the word that he had died. And I remember thinking, just feeling so awful, and thinking, "Please, please, God, don't let that card have you know. Please let him have died before that card got there." His belongings got shipped back to my mother, and I remember the day she opened that trunk, and the card was laying there, and it was opened. And I, I remember taking that card going in the bathroom and just ripping it up in little tiny pieces and flushing it down the toilet. I never, ever told a soul about that until I took my inventory. It was, it is not a big thing. It really, I mean, I certainly didn't do this intentionally. You know, I didn't, I loved my brother. I certainly would never intentionally do anything to cause him, you know, distress or pain. And yet I felt so incredibly guilty about that. I just carried that. It was one of those terrible, terrible secrets I will never tell anybody. Um, I was filled with that kind of, um, those terrible secrets and guilt and, and I just carried that kind of stuff around with me forever. Uh, it just gives me more reason to drink. It just, you know, it, it's like the, the reasons and the excuses are building up with each passing day. I, uh, after my brother died, I was hysterical most of the time. I simply could not seem to get a grip on myself. And 
one day my husband said, you know, I don't know. And he was a, a good and decent man. I mean, he boy, really. Uh, and he said, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to help you. Maybe you should go stay with your mother for a while. Maybe, um, you know, he really was helpless to, to know what to do. And that seemed like a good idea. So I went um, back to my mother's. And essentially, I never went back to my husband. See, that's the back door. I can do that. I, I just never really did look him in the eye and say, I just simply never went back. I never talked to him much about it. I, he wanted to go to marriage counseling. I, I refused because I don't know what's wrong. I just know I can't go back. I um, moved to L.A. after I sort of, you know, regrouped at my folks for a while, and then I moved up 50 miles to L.A. and uh, got a job in an apartment, and I became a daily drunk. From the first moment that I was in Los Angeles, I started drinking daily. I was uh, unsupervised, so to speak. Um, I uh, was working. My first job was as a um, – my parents were divorced when I was young, and, and so my father, my real father, was vice president of this trucking company in Los Angeles, and I asked him for a job. I'm, I had secretarial skills, and I asked him if he'd give me – and I had very good secretarial skills, but I'd never actually – use them, you know, on a real job. And so I had, you know, it's hard to get that first job. And so I asked him if he would give me a job, and he was very reluctant, very reluctant. He said, you know, I just, I don't know, the idea of a family member, it makes me a little uncomfortable. He was to have no idea how uncomfortable this was to get. <laughs> he thought about it, and uh, he eventually said, you know, all right, I understand. He said, I'll give you a job with the understanding that it's for a year. That'll give you, a, you know, a good solid year on a resume, and, and then, you know, you can move on. And as it turned on, I, I didn't even stay here. I, uh, I think it was 10 months and I, uh, and I quit. Uh, I'm an alcoholic and I, um, now I'm drinking, you know, with complete abandon, so to speak. Uh, there's nobody to, to monitor, uh, what I'm doing and I'm, I'm drunk every day. I started drinking in the bars with these truck drivers and, uh, the bars and the bowling alleys and, and, uh, hanging out and just, you know, often the places that I was hanging out with these guys were bars where women never were. Um, which were my favorite places. I felt quite special in these particular bars and got a lot of attention. And I thought I was the most precious thing that anybody had ever known. <coughs> Excuse me. Scratchy throat. It's this Montana air. It's too clear. It's getting me all choked up. Um, I behaved badly. I uh, knew most of these truck drivers in the biblical sense, you might say. And... It was not a small company, and uh, you know it's pretty much the same reputation I had in high school. Only now everybody's just a little older, you know. And uh, it made me feel bad, you know. It made me feel bad in the light of day, going to work and facing people sober, you know, and knowing that they were laughing about me and talking about me. And and so I left the job before the year was up. And I know that, that Daddy was grateful. He actually called me one time during during that period. Uh, called me at home and um, tried to talk to me. And, you know, I, I know today that my father loves me and has always loved me, and he was trying to help me, but I simply couldn't, um, I could not look at any of it. I just couldn't. And so I said terrible, terrible things to him on the phone that day. And uh, the upshot of the conversation was we really didn't speak again for years. Um, we, we did start speaking sort of um, before I came, just before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, but it was not until I made amends to him that, um, you know, we have a good relationship today. Uh, and that is a direct result of Alcoholics Anonymous. No question about it. Absolutely no question about it. Anyway, I left that job and I moved on to the next job and, and I behaved exactly the same way there um, because that's what I do. Uh, this, the next few years of my life were pretty much, you know, just a repeat. You could take the year and just keep repeating it over and over. I would start a job here with this company and you are my friends. You are the people that I work with. You're the people that I eat all my meals with. You're the people that I drink with. You're the people that I either sleep with you or your spouses, as the case may be. Eventually, I must leave this company for obvious reasons. It becomes very uncomfortable, and it's like you're all dead. Now you're my new company, and I eat with you and sleep with you and drink with you, and, and that's how it was. I did not have – I sponsor women today who, you know, they get to AA, and they say, well, what do I tell my friends? 
I don't have a clue because I didn't have any friends when I got here. It was not, you know, it's just not in my experience. Uh, nobody was interested in me when I when I got sober. Uh, nobody was taking my calls. Nobody was calling me. Nobody was ringing my doorbell. You know, uh, it was not a, a problem that I had. I, I, uh, I felt friendless. In fact, for a long time in Alcoholics Anonymous because I'm shy. Remember, so it was hard for me to make friends here. I, I felt like, you know, this sort of terrible wallflower in Alcoholics Anonymous for a long time. Um, but but eventually, you know, I just kept coming back, and I started doing the things that everybody in my group was doing, and whether I wanted to do do them or not, and I, I became part of. But anyway, I um, so I'm going from job to job, and it's just kind of going from bad to worse. I mean, uh, I uh, uh, you know, when you're when I was young, I thought black. I've always drunk in blackouts. When I was young, I, they seemed kind of I don't know cute. I thought you were amused by them, and and you would tell me the next day what I had done, and we'd sort of chuckle over it, and. <laughs> it then sort of became, as the years were passing, it became apparent to me that not everybody had blackouts, and that you know I started trying to sort of hide them, and um, and it was hard, you know, it's, it's hard to do that from the people that you're, you know, you're hanging out with that same group of people all the time. And um, I went through these odd, bizarre phases that God knows where they came from. I went through, I like to call my mariachi phase. I uh, discovered this bar in San Juan Capistrano, which is not around the corner from L.A. It's a, I don't know, 80 miles away, and. Uh, they they had a uh, this bar there that had this mariachi band that that uh, played there every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night. They lived in uh, I guess Tijuana or Ensenada maybe, and they they drove up on Thursdays and they they played those nights and they stayed at a little local motel and then on on Sundays they they drove home presumably to their wives and many children. I don't know. I none of them spoke English, so I <laughs> we don't have any details of their lives, but I suspect they were all considerably older than me. Somehow or other, I have no idea how I discovered this charming establishment and uh, began going there every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night. Uh, I would get off work on Thursday, and I would drive the 80 miles down there, and, and the first thing I would do is I would hand the bartender my purse. Who would put, Everybody knew me. He'd put it behind the, per, uh, the uh, bar, so you know, because I, I would lose it, and, uh, and I would drink. And uh, there was a little uh, dance floor there where um, you know the patrons could dance, and uh, at some point during the evening, one of these mariachi, there were maybe ten, eight or ten guys in this band, at some point during the evening, one of them would put his instrument down and ask me to dance. And I tell you, I can remember it like it was last night, moving around the dance floor with this guy and feeling like everybody in the room is looking at me, thinking, who is she? She must be, she knows the band. She must be somebody special. Well, I knew the band all right. I mean, I knew them very well. And I'm sure people were looking at me, and they were probably talking about me, but I don't think they were um, looking at me with quite the awe and admiration I thought they were <laughs> feeling. Um, it's safe to say I was not clearly in touch with reality here. Uh, I went there for, I don't know, months, the better part of, part of a year, perhaps. Uh, I don't remember why I stopped going. Something must have happened that was even so hideous by my standards that, um, you know, that I, which were diminishing with each passing day. Um, I was talking at a meeting um, a few years ago, not far from from where that bar was, and I uh, I thought I'm gonna drive by and see if I can find that place, and and I, and I did, and they'd sort of it was really a dump when I was going there, and so they sort of cleaned it up and made it kind of a yuppie bar, but the the configuration of it is essentially the same, you know, the shape and the, the way the door was, and the and I part it was dark when I drove by there, and I parked across the street, and I could sort of see catty corner through the door into into that bar, and I sat there a few minutes just thinking about it, looking in that door, and you know I couldn't come up with one single happy memory out of that place. Not one single laugh that I'd had, not one single good conversation, not one single good feeling. Every feeling that I could think of sitting there looking in that door was just terrible, tawdry, degrading, and yet I drove there every Friday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night for months. That's what alcoholism does to me.
You know, that that is how I behave. I, I hated everything about myself long, long before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I uh I got I started working as a um I started working as a go go dancer. Um <laughs> I saw this as sort of this major show business career, you know. Uh, I really did. Uh, also saw it as a, I, I thought I was going to get rich here. I, I kept my day job, and, and I'm working as a dancer at night. And, and uh, I, I have to say that dancing ability was not a requirement for the job. I mean, I really have to be honest here. Uh, at the time, go-go dance. If you're young, by the way, and don't know what a go-go dancer is, please don't ask me. <laughs> ask somebody else. Somebody asked me that for me. I just wanted to slap her. Anyway. Um, I got this, you know, at the time, go-go dancing was really at the height of its popularity. All the, all the bars in Los Angeles had go-go dancers. Um, all the, all the nice clubs on Sunset Strip had dancers. I mean, all, you know, the nicer clubs had them. I did not work in these nicer clubs. I worked in some just dumps, just absolute dumps. And, uh, I met the man who was to become my next husband there at Nick's where I was working and, uh, he was uh, perhaps the most unsuitable man in all of Los Angeles. <laughs> my parents were absolutely appalled. Um, to sum up this relationship, let me say that we were married for 11 years. My parents never met him. They felt so strongly about it. They don't live all that far away either. Um, they just really, there was nothing about him that they were happy about. Um, I, you know, I'm not sure what drew me to him except that um, by now I'm in, I'm working in these bars. I'm, uh, I'm re- really leading this double life. I'm at work during the day on my secretarial job and I'm, um, you know, dressed kind of like I am now and I'm quiet because I'm not getting much sleep. So I'm tired a lot. Sitting at my desk, I'm doing my typing. I'm not bothering anybody. They all think I'm just sort of, and I'm a good worker. When I'm working, I'm a real good worker. And so they think I'm great. And, and then I get off at five and I drive down to Nick's or Joe's, wherever I'm working. I take off most of my clothes, have a few drinks and go to work. And it's a completely different, um, I remember the night that I was, um, up there, uh, obviously I drank now to do this. You understand I, I'm shy. I can't do this sober. So, so I must be, uh, you know, at least pleasantly gassed, if you will, in order to get up there and do this. And it's a it's a fine line that you draw, you know, you to 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 have enough alcohol in me to be able to do it, but not so much that I can't. Uh, if I if I didn't ha- if I wasn't drunk enough, I simply stayed in the back room and drank until I was ready, so to speak, to go out there. I often overshot the mark, though, because I'm an alcoholic. I cannot control my drinking. Um, more than once, more than thirty or forty times, I would guess, uh, I passed out right on stage. I mean, just crashed to the floor. Um, <laughs> The bars I worked in didn't matter much. Uh, a couple of guys from the front row, would, they had a little back room, I remember, at Nick's with a sofa and a couple of guys, just guys from the audience, you know, would pick me up and carry me back there and deposit me on that sofa and I'd sleep it off. And if I came to, while the, you know, before two o'clock, while, while the bar was still open, I, I can remember I'd, you know, I'd be in that room and the door would be closed but I could hear the sort of the pounding of the music, you know, the rhythm and it just all seemed so exciting and I'd splash cold water in my face and pull myself together and come back out there and it seemed to me I got this thunderous applause and they were all I felt just so loved and so adored and so special and it was so tawdry I mean I cannot even imagine um anyway so my my next husband to be was a customer there who clearly recognized talent and um and we embarked on this relationship we lived together a while and eventually we did get married and um now I'm married but I'm still, I keep chewing this ice. I'm sorry, that's so rude. Sorry, I'll try not to do that. Um, now we're, now we're married, but I'm still behaving like I'm single. And so you can imagine we had some problems around the house there. We started having these serious discussions about my behavior. Uh, I, uh, would not come home after work or I would come home, you know, late, missing parts of my clothing or not an adequate explanation for where they might be. I, the people that I was waking up with were stranger and scarier and, the whole deal was just really frightening me. I started going to jail. 
Uh, my first arrest was on a Thanksgiving night. I'd been to dinner at my parents' house in Newport. Uh, my husband, of course, had not been invited, and so he had gone to a – his boss had had something for the employees uh, where he worked, and so he'd gone to that up in L.A. And I, I remember drinking um, quite a bit at my parents' house and then leaving, and I uh, stopped at a couple of places. And the memory gets a little hazier here as the night wears on. But the long and short of it is I was coming out of a bar on Main Street in downtown L.A., which is Skid Row. I don't know why I was in that particular bar on, in that particular neighborhood. It is not in a straight line from where my parents lived to where I live. Um, but there I was, uh, and I got arrested for common drunk on Main Street. They took me to um, Sybil Brand, which is the women's um, uh, jail there, and uh, they told me I could make a phone call. I was scared. You know, there were really awful women in there. Terrible. I was scared. Um, Criminal-type women, you know. <laughs> uh, they told me I could make a phone call. I remember that the <coughs> excuse me. I remember that my husband was at this deal at his boss's house, so I called over there, and um, his boss's wife answered, and I identified myself and told her that I was in jail. Could she have my husband come bail me out? Now, I never stopped to think for a moment that might be a little awkward for him or possibly embarrassing. It never occurred to me. And uh, yet, years later, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I sat in meetings a long, long time, hearing you talk about making amends and seriously sitting in my chair thinking, no, I... I can't think of anybody that I've hurt. I, I don't think I've hurt anybody. <laughs> you know, if I knew you, chances are I hurt you. I am, as the book describes, I'm selfish and self-centered. I, I think only of me. I don't see that. It took me, it took me so long to see that because I, I feel so overly sensitive. You know, I think I'm more sensitive than most people. But that's more like on the big picture items. You know what I mean? It's like the children starving wherever I can hardly stand it. Sometimes I can hardly stand to watch the news because there's such tragic, awful events that touch me so. I cry at situation comedies on TV. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm really overly sensitive. But as I say, that's sort of the big picture. When it comes to sort of common courtesy to those around me, I have no interest whatsoever. You know, none. Uh, anyway, I, um, oh, thank you. Pardon me, we're having a little cough break here. Now I can crunch these in my teeth in the microphone. <clears throat> oh, this should be fun. <laughs> I'm really sorry. Um, Let's see. So, oh, so I'm getting arrested. My, my next arrest was in Tijuana for obscene dancing, which sort of gives you a clear picture of how my life was going. It was not going well. I started drinking at home shortly thereafter. Um, it seemed the the best idea. I was um I was I didn't know that alcohol was starting not to work for me. Uh, it's an interesting phrase. Alcohol's not working anymore. I've never heard a phrase like that until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. The first time I heard it, I knew exactly what the man was talking about because that's what happened to me just around this period of time. I was certainly still getting drunk. I mean, if you saw me on the street, you would say, oh, my God, that woman is drunk. But but it didn't work all the time. You know, it didn't. It just didn't work. It didn't do that magic. It didn't take away that discomfort or fear. It just I was filled with consumed with fear most of the time or, or it would take it away briefly, but not nearly long enough. And. I didn't know that's kind of the kiss of death on your drinking. I just kept trying to recapture it and trying to recapture it and trying to recapture it. But I did drink at home um, for the most part for the last couple of years. And I uh, I thought for a while that I had this drinking problem under control. I remember thinking that, wow, I've got this drinking problem under control. See, I'm thinking about it. I know I don't drink like other people. The reason I thought that is, you know, when you're drunk in your living room in a purple flannel bathrobe in your rocking chair, nothing much happens. You don't go to jail. You don't wake up with strange people. You don't lose your car. Nothing much happens. Well, I did fight with my husband a lot, but by now he was gone most of the time at the racetrack at night because he simply couldn't stand to be around me, I think. Um, I hated myself. I hated my life. I drank every night until I passed out. That's what I did. My days were all virtually alike. 
I would get up in the morning. I would, but now I'm getting a little older. I'm not bouncing back quite so fast in the mornings, you know. I'm having these hangovers, and they're really um, debilitating. I mean, I can hardly move. Uh, I would get up, and I, I would be sick and shaking. And one of the things I would do is uh, I used to write down, the because I'm in blackouts all the time, I never knew what went on the night before. I never knew if my husband and I had had a fight or not. And so I would write myself these notes. I didn't do this. I mean, you can't always remember when you're drunk. But when I could remember to do it, I'd write myself this little note about what had gone on. And I'll tell you what uh, started me doing this. is One night he went to the track, and he won, I think it was $10,000. It was a lot of money. And he had it all in $100 bills. And he came home, apparently. I have no recollection of this. He came home, and he um, threw all these $100 bills up in the air on the bed. And we were apparently dancing around on the bed amidst these $100 bills. The next morning, I came to, and I rolled over, and I said to him, So, how did you do at the track last night? He could not believe that I didn't remember this event. I mean, I can hardly believe it myself today. You know, that's a lot of money. Um, so, I started, that is when I started writing these notes to myself, because he really, um, he really thought this was, he was very concerned. And uh, so, I would write on this piece of paper things like, um, speaking, not speaking, discuss divorce, you know, kind of the highlights of the night here. <laughs> And I put this pad of paper under my side of the bed. And so I'd wake up in the morning. Now I'm sick. I'm shaking. I'm feeling awful. And I would uh, reach under the bed and read that little note and try to figure out how to act, you know. And uh, go take a shower and go to work. Um, I've always had a job. Even right up to the end, I had a job. Now, I wasn't – I got sober when I was 30. I would say I peaked in my career at about age 23, you know. So the job, by the time I got sober, was not much of a job. But I had a job. And, and it was real important there because everybody knows alcoholics don't have jobs. So that, I knew that. Uh, it's real important to have that job. That was such a little nothing job that I could do it uh, hungover and always did. I could do it drunk and sometimes did. I could miss a lot of days. I could forget to come back after lunch, all of these things, which I often did, and still get my duties done. And, and that's why I worked at this job. Um, but I had a job, so I can't be an alcoholic. I, uh, and so I'd go to work, and I'd either, um, you know, make it through lunch without drinking or not. I tried not to drink at lunchtime because I know it's just going to be bad, you know, if I do and Assuming that I got through lunch without drinking, I get home from work, and the first thing I do is I walk in the kitchen, I pick up the bottle of scotch, and I have a quick drink. Once I have just a swallow, you know, once I got that first swallow in me, now I can sort of, it's like, you know, I can relax, change into my purple flannel bathrobe, and then settle in for an evening of drinking. Um, it occurred to me, finally, after, you know, I don't know how long of this, that, that you know, maybe, maybe something good would happen to my life if I stopped drinking. I mean, I'm probably an alcoholic. If that's true, if I'm an alcoholic, I shouldn't drink. Alcoholics should, I'm not stupid, for God's sake. Alcoholics shouldn't drink, so I'm not going to drink. Tomorrow, these conversations in my head always go on when I'm drunk, usually. So tomorrow, um, I won't drink. It'll be a whole new life here. And so I get up in the morning, and I am filled with firm resolve. I'm not going to drink. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. I used to love that expression. Never went anywhere with it, but I liked it a lot. I'm not going to drink today. I'd get dressed and, and uh, shower and, and go off to work, and I'd be filled, just convinced that I'm not ever going to drink again. It's going to be great. And I'm going to go back to college and finish my education. I'm going to start doing some physical exercise. It's going to, my life is going to be great. But I'm an alcoholic. And before that day is over, I must take a drink. It was often as simple as I would walk in the house and there'd be a half a fifth or whatever of scotch sitting on that sink. And I'd think to myself, how in the world could I possibly think I could quit with an open bottle of scotch? What I'll do is I'll drink this down. Tomorrow there'll be nothing. Then I'll quit. It'll be easier to quit. I'm an alcoholic, though. And as the level of that bottle goes down, I get a little bit nervous. And i got to call the liquor store to deliver a new one. And tomorrow what I have is more or less a half a fifth of scotch. And I did it again and again and again and again. And I meant it every day. Tomorrow when there's nothing here, I'll quit. 
One night I called Alcoholics Anonymous. I have no idea why I did such a ridiculous thing. Not a clue. Cannot imagine why I would do such a thing. Real nice man answered the phone, asked me if I was having a problem with alcohol. I said that I was and, and started to cry. And he stayed on the phone with me a long time, talking to me, told me a lot about himself, way more than I was interested in. <laughs> but he was talking to me. And, you know, by now I, I had turned into one of those just pathetic people who call people on the phone, you know. <laughs> so I was sort of pleased that somebody was actually talking to me. And, and so he uh, asked me if I thought I could. He wanted to send some women over to my house. I don't think so. Uh, had he offered, I would have shown some interest, but he didn't. Uh, he asked if it was a Friday when I called. He said, do you think you could not drink tomorrow and go to a meeting tomorrow night? Now, I don't know if I can not drink tomorrow night. I am a daily drunk. I've been drinking daily for maybe 12 years, but I know the right answer. And so I say, oh, sure. And um, he said, well, okay, there's a meeting here. And he gave me an address in, uh, in Santa Monica near where I was living. And uh, and uh, we hung up. And, and, of course, I continued to drink until I passed out. And I came to the next morning, and I remembered making the call. And I remembered, um, you know, bits and pieces of it. And, and I found the piece of paper where I'd written the address down. And... In the light of day, it didn't seem like quite such a good idea to go to Alcoholics Anonymous, but I couldn't get it out of my mind that, that entire day, thinking about it. And I found myself going to that meeting that night, and I had no idea that my life was about to change forever. I had no idea. I um, It was a speaker meeting. It was a Pacific Group uh, Saturday night speaker meeting. I mean, of course, I didn't know anything from the Pacific Group, from whatever, you know, but... Um, I guess there were about 300 people that attended that meeting in those days, and it might as well have been 30,000 as far as I was concerned. I mean, it was a huge number of people going down these church uh, steps into the basement, and I was just completely consumed with thinking about myself and how was I ever going to get out of the car and walk into this room full of strangers. And, and I didn't drink that day. The guy on the phone said don't drink, so I didn't drink. Now, it's an 8.30 meeting. We're now at 8.25. Maybe I'm sitting in the car and looking at these people, and I need a drink bad. I need a drink real bad. Often by 8.30, I'm already passed out, so I'm not feeling good at all at 8.30 on this particular night. And, but somehow or other, I got out of my car, and I walked down those um, steps down in that basement. And I remember there was a man standing at the door who put out his hand and said, Hello, my name is Clint. Welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. It, you know, it, it overwhelms me when I think about it. It made me feel welcome. It really did. And, it, you know, I, I, I mean, obviously I'm preaching to the choir here, but I think it's the most important thing that you ever do in a meeting is welcome the newcomer, the single most important thing you ever do in a meeting. I always try to... Um, at our big Wednesday night meeting, which is a huge meeting, as you, as most of you know, and um, I always try to stand in the front of the room during the, that period of time before the meeting starts and, and look down and see where there's people sitting down alone because I know they're new. They have to be new, you know, and, and try to go welcome those people because I know how important it was for me. I, um, I, you know, shook his hand and went into the room, and as I said, I'm not feeling well. I need a drink real bad. I'm dressed in terrible, terrible clothes. I'm sick and shaking and sweating, which was sort of a side effect of drinking that I had, and uh, just dripping. And we're not talking little beads of, you know, we're talking drenched here and I'm standing in the back of the room I'm going to cry any minute and the man came up and said are you new and I thought how did he know that <laughs> I said well yes as a matter of fact I am and it seemed like that there's about 50 women coming at me they're all writing their numbers on little scraps of paper and teeth lots of teeth and uh, they seemed so thrilled to see me just thrilled and uh, believe me I hadn't had a reception like this in a long time anywhere they uh, they got me a seat and uh and the meeting started, and it was a, a speaker meeting, and the, um, the speaker, Vince mentioned him, the other speaker was a, a man by the name of Norm Alfie, and uh, this guy hooked me. I didn't know that, but that's what happened to me that night. This guy made me laugh. He made me cry. I mean, I just, I leaned, I was, I, I remember at one time becoming aware that I was leaning forward in my chair so I wouldn't miss anything. I just, I was absolutely, I remember at one point laughing so hard, he was talking about uh, sleeping in his car and thinking the window was down and going to vomit, but the window was up, and I just, I laughed until I just thought I was going to hurt myself, you know, and 
I couldn't remember the last time I had laughed like that. I could not remember it. Um, the minute his voice stopped, this good feeling or whatever it was I had stopped with it. But, of course, what I got that night was hope. I, I wouldn't have told you that that night, but I, but I can see it today. I, of course, dashed out of the room the minute the meeting was over. When you did the Lord's Prayer, you know, and you, and you say, keep coming back, and, and the person on either side squeezed my hands, I thought that was so nice of them to realize that I'm, I didn't know you, that everybody squeezed hands. I, I hope I haven't ruined it for you if you're new. Um, <laughs> really touched me a lot. And, um, and I, of course, then I dashed out of the room and I went home. And I, I stayed up most of the night reading that book, and I, I thought, this is great. I'm going to go to this meeting every Saturday night and be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I heard you say go to a lot of meetings. Every Saturday night is a lot of meetings. Thank you very much. And I drank again on Friday. Which, now, first of all, I didn't drink, you know, from Saturday to Friday. And I remember thinking every day, God, this is phenomenal. AA really works. I'm, I'm in AA and I'm not drinking. Don't want to drink? This is great. And then on Friday, it seemed to me I was struck drunk. Well, I had been sitting in a bar for several hours drinking Diet Pepsi just to be sociable. And then somehow I wound up drunk. And I, I just, I remember thinking, I do not remember picking up the first drink. I remember just sort of being aware that I was drunk and thinking, I can't be drunk. I'm in AA. Well, I, I was drunk, and I was not in AA, I might add, also. <laughs> I went back to the meeting the next night. I raised my hand for being under a week of sobriety again, and I got some more phone numbers, and one of these ladies said, you know, you might find it helpful to actually call one of these numbers, which, of course, I hadn't done. The idea of calling it a stranger sober is so appalling to me, I can't even imagine. What would I say? <laughs> I drank a couple more times that week, and then I called that woman who, who had said that to me, and uh, I was drunk when I called her. And uh, she said, you know, you might want to get a sponsor. You don't seem to be doing too keen here on your own. And and so I asked her to be my sponsor. I didn't have a clue what a sponsor was, which in retrospect is probably just as well. Um, <laughs> she seemed thrilled to be asked and told me to meet her the next night early before the meeting. And we talked. The next night was a Thursday. That's not meeting night, but I would like to get off on the right foot here. So I agreed to meet her at this place. And she said, do you have a big book? I said, yeah, I should bring it along with you. So I go down to the church there and... Um, you know, this is just a little aside about this, but this is this is how Alcoholics Anonymous works, and I, and I just love it. There was a guy there, the only guy that was there at the moment when I got there was a guy who was making coffee. He's a guy who's sober, I guess, four months longer than me. Um, I mean, I didn't know any of this, of course, at the time. Um, he, you know, introduced himself to me and, and um, asked me if I was coming to the meeting. I said, yes, I'm meeting Maggie. And he said, oh, yeah, she'll be along, I'm sure, and that she'll be a great sponsor. And we had this, you know, conversation where he made me feel welcome and I didn't find out until later. This guy didn't, he didn't, he's like incapable of talking to anybody. Um, he hadn't had a conversation with anybody in the entire time he'd been sober and for many months thereafter, I might add. But when I was in that, when it was he and I in that room and I was newer than him, um, he talked to me and he made me feel welcome. You know, that's AA. I, I don't know how this works. I really don't. It is a miraculous program. That is all I can say. It is, I believe it from the tip of my toes to the, to the top of my head. Things happen here that are impossible to happen. Anyway, Maggie got there and, um, we started to talk. The first thing she did is she opened up my book to the my big book to the front cover and told me to write that day's date in there. I wrote the day's date in there, and she said, "That's your sobriety date." I thought, "Oh God, I shouldn't have done this in ink." You know. <laughs> Happy to report that it's my sobriety date, August twenty eighth, nineteen seventy five. The next thing she did is she took the meeting directory, you know, that lists the meetings in the area, and she circled the meeting for every night of the week. She didn't say go to a meeting every night. She said go to this meeting on Monday, go to this meeting on Tuesday, this meeting on Wednesday. You know, and laid out a specific schedule. I was absolutely appalled. I said, excuse me, I'm a married woman. I don't think I can do this. And she said, uh, well, perhaps you can do it on less, but I can't be your sponsor if you're going to do it on, try to do it on less. She said, if you want me to be your sponsor, I assume it's because you want what I have. And if, I, if you want what I have, I only know one way to get it, and that's to do what I do. My mind was sort of 
racing, trying to jump ahead of this. I know there's a there's a way around this. I'm sure of it. I, I'm a bright woman. I can get it. Just give me a minute. Um, but of course, there isn't. That is exactly the truth. You know, if you want what I have, do what I do. And, and so the miracle for me, and Vince talked about it, is that I was desperate enough to uh, to do it, to agree to do it. Now, I don't want to imply that I agreed graciously or, you know, with a good attitude, but um, <laughs> but I did it. And, and again, the miracle is, and, and wonderful news for all of us, it doesn't matter what your attitude is. In fact, she said to me that, and I remember I say, said to her, my husband isn't going to like this at all. And she said, it doesn't matter if he likes it. It doesn't matter if you like it. I guarantee you if you do these things, your life will change for the better. I absolutely guarantee it. Now, I don't believe her. Why would I believe her? I don't know her. But again, the miracle is I, I started doing the stuff. And so I started going to a meeting every night. And I was right. He didn't like it. My husband didn't like it at all. He thought I was coming here to meet men. It's a good guess. I, was, <laughs> I saw you guys, and I was certainly hoping to get better acquainted with some of you. And uh, none of you, though, appeared to be interested in me, which uh, hurt my feelings a lot. I used to think about this kind of stuff. I thought somehow I lost my charm when I quit drinking, that it somehow was connected with alcohol there because nobody in AA was giving me any attention, none of the guys. And it really ticked me off that my husband was accusing me of something that I wasn't doing right at that minute, you know. No matter that it's not my choice, I'm not doing it, you know. And I felt so sorry for myself. I really did. I thought, you know, if you were married to my husband, if you had my life, you'd want to drink too. I whined and sniveled at every meeting I went to. I was told to get uh, early commitments at all my meetings, which meant that I was the coffee maker or the cookie person or something that would require me to, to get to the meeting early. <laughs> I was to get there an hour early, do whatever it was my commitment was, and then um, shake hands with every single person, just move around the room and shake hands with everybody, ask them how they were as though I cared. <laughs> I did not have a good attitude. Um, here's how I would have the fight. <laughs> you know, about me going to AA. I'd get in the car. I'd be sobbing hysterically. It's a miracle I was not killed in an automobile accident driving to a meeting because I cried at every meeting, on the way to every meeting. I'd get to the meeting and I'd slam those cookies around in the kitchen or whatever I was supposed to be doing, you know. And then I'd come out and I'd, and I'd work the room, you know, and I'd go like, hi, Vince, how are you? And he'd say, fine, how are you? And I'd tell him how I was, you know, in great intimate detail, sobbing tragically, you know. <laughs> oh, God, it's so sad. My husband said this. I said that. I was what I'm gonna do until he was his eyes would glaze over and he'd move on and <laughs> Hi Carlene, how are you? You know, that's what I did. Um people were fairly patient, as patient as they could possibly be, and kind and as you fled from me you'd say something really helpful like uh keep coming back, it gets better a day at a time. Not for me it's not. Uh, maybe for you. I mean I, it's just not getting better at all. If if this is sobriety, I, as near as I can tell I might as well be drunk. I can't do this, this is too hard. But I'd sit down and the meeting would start and apparently I'd hear whatever it was I needed to hear. And I say apparently because it's not like there was this big eureka. I've heard it. It was just, you know, I'd leave the meeting and I'd feel a little bit better. And I'd get through another day and sob through dinner and sob on the way to the meeting and slam the cookies around and, and so it went. One night I was at a meeting. I was, I think I was three or four months sober and I learned the single most important thing I've learned in, in all the time I've been an alcoholic synonymous. I was at the meeting, and I was sniveling around exactly as I just described to you, and I went up to this guy, Larry, and said, hi, how are you? And he said, fine, how are you? And I started to tell him, and he cut me off. He said, I don't want to listen to that garbage. He didn't use the word garbage. He said, I don't want to listen to that. Why don't you go find a newcomer to talk to? Perhaps you'd feel better. And he pointed to a girl in the back of the room. He said, that girl over there in the red dress is at her very first meeting. Why don't you just go over there and talk to her? I stood there. Um, I love that thing the other night with the bubbles over the head. God, do I identify with that. One bubble is saying... Um, I don't care if the girl in the red dress lives or dies. I wish Larry would die. <laughs> Mind his own business. And the other bubble is going, well, you better do it. Your, Larry will surely tell your sponsor and then you're screwed. So 
my only motivation here is I'm going to go say hello to this girl so Larry won't tell my sponsor that I didn't do it. That is my only motivation. I believe if memory serves, I was still crying as I welcomed this girl to Alcoholics Anonymous. It's all about me. The girl who had 12-stepped her, who I knew, said, Oh, I'm so happy to see you, Pat. This is whatever her name was. This is our first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and she had this big fight with her husband about coming here, and I've been waiting for you because I just knew you were the right person to talk to her. Again, the bubbles, you know, one side is going, No, I'm the worst person in the room to talk to her. I have absolutely nothing of any benefit to share. It doesn't work. I kind of overlooked that I was sober there. It doesn't work. My life is terrible. I, you know, I have nothing to share. The other bubble is going, well, yeah, but you are talking to her and you ought to try to say something positive here. And, you know, and, and I opened up my mouth and I heard myself say the worst thing. Keep coming back. It gets better a day at a time. I have just lied to a newcomer. It's not true. It simply isn't true. I walk away from this girl. I know I didn't talk to her for more than a minute at the most. I think closer to 30 seconds. I simply would not have talked to her any longer than that. There was a center aisle like this. I walked back down the center aisle. I was maybe halfway down, and I had a spiritual experience. Um, I know know of no other way to tell the story than exactly how it happened. It is like God just tapped me on the head. I mean, I stopped dead in my tracks. And I realized that it was the first time in those three, four, whatever months it was that I was sober, in that hour period of time from the time I hit the door until the meeting actually starts, that I was there and I wasn't crying. And the reason I wasn't crying is because for this brief little moment of time, I thought about somebody else besides myself. For this 30-second, maybe a minute, I tried to say something encouraging to this girl who was newer than me, and I felt better. I really, I mean, it's it's like God stopped me and and shouted it in my ear. It was that clear. Um, Of course, from that moment to this, I've happily worked with others, and my life has been perfect. (laughs) Well, okay, maybe not exactly. But it's a lesson I have never forgotten, and it is true. You know, it says in the book, or perhaps it's the 12 and 12, that it says actually says it several times, but when all else fails, working with another alcoholic will save the day. That is the absolute truth, the absolute truth. It turns out that when I am thinking about your case, I cannot be thinking about my case at the same time. And any time I'm not thinking about me, I'm having a better day, and so is everybody around me. <laughs> it's just that simple. People often um, describe, by the way, if you're new, everything I say up here is my own opinion based on my experiences. I'm right, of course, but I'm obliged to tell you that it's no. I'm right for me. I'm right for me. People often, and this is just an opinion, but but it's one that I have. Uh, people describe AA as a self-help program, which I, I guess it is. But it, that kind of bothers me because that implies that we're in here, to me, self-help implies that somehow we're in here thinking about ourselves all the time. And I do not see AA that way at all. You know, once we get through the inventory steps, the whole rest of the deal ceases to be about me thinking about me and is now me thinking about you. It is about me, as we've talked about, paying the money back, making amends of whatever nature there are, being a better mother, daughter, sister, friend, wife, employee, employer, whatever it is to you, it is about me being of loving service to you. It ceases to be about me thinking about me. And so I I just kind of don't like self-help, but that's just an opinion. Anyway, um, I digress. Uh, I, uh, I've never forgotten that moment in that, in that, when I think about it today, I, you know, I just, it is such a powerful moment, um, that, that, uh, that happened that night. I, uh, it has worked for me over the years. Whenever I have been, you know, willing to, to do it, it has worked. I didn't sponsor people for a, for a while in Alcoholics Anonymous, and it bothered me because my peers uh, in sobriety were sponsoring people, and I just think, geez, what's the matter with me? Doesn't anybody want what I have? Well, I guess not. You know, they weren't asking me. Would you want a sponsor who's crying a lot? I mean, I don't think so. You know? When I started getting better, um, people started to ask me to, to sponsor them. I uh, I knew that my problems were 
this guy, this husband. It had to be. It can't be me. I'm working this spiritual program, so these problems at home can't be my fault. Now, I'm not working any kind of a spiritual program at all at home. I'm I'm sober, and I'm, uh, you know, uh, that's about it at home. You know, I, I'm looking better at meetings a little bit. I mean, I can act as if a little, little better at meetings, but I'm not acting well at home at all. But I don't, I can't see this at all. It's his fault. If you were in my life, you know, if you had my husband, you'd be unhappy too. Obviously, with an attitude like this, it was inevitable that one night I would meet a man at a meeting who looked real good to me. This momentous occasion occurred when I was 10 months sober. The uh, gentleman in question was about 10 minutes sober. I spotted him when he came through the door the first time, and it's we're like radar, you know. I mean, it's like, and I leaped across some chairs to introduce myself to him, and my sponsor noticed and got me off to the side of the room, and she said, let us not forget that you're a married woman. I remember What I remember most about this conversation is this whiny voice I had. I remember standing there going, yeah, but I'm so unhappy. She said, nonetheless, you're married, and as long as you're married, I expect you to act married. I said, you know, I don't see this as a problem. I'll get divorced. She said, no, we in Alcoholics Anonymous don't feel it's a great idea to make these major changes in our first, this is like my life we're talking about, she's using this we are stuff, in our first year of sobriety. We think it's a good idea just to stay where we are. I didn't think it was a good idea, and I, I couldn't understand, why would God get this guy sober in my home group if he didn't mean for us to be together? This is so clear to me. I don't see why she can't see this. She didn't see it. His sponsor didn't see it either. Uh, but we were obsessed. I know you understand this if you're in this room. We were obsessed. And so we began, I think of it as the death dance. Um, it starts where, you know, we're brushing up against each other in the coffee line. And then um, he's walking me to my car after the meeting. And then um, I'm parking further and further away from the meeting so the walk is longer, you know. <laughs> it was complicated to arrange a liaison here because uh, obviously I'm a married woman and we're not going to go to my place. And he's a newcomer. He doesn't have a place. <laughs> If you want something to happen bad enough, you can make it happen. And this part's a little harder, but if you're really diligent here, you can kind of, kind of convince yourself it's God's will. That part is harder. I'll grant you. I had a lot of trouble with that part, but I, you know, sometimes I could sort of convince myself of that. I arranged, he was working, I was working at a record company in Hollywood at the time, and he was working at this porn bookstore in Hollywood, <laughs> very close to where I worked. And so, um, I arranged this long lunch hour one day for somebody at work to cover for me. I went down to the bookstore, and he didn't have a car either, so I went down to the bookstore and picked him up, and we went to this motel on Sunset Boulevard and spent some time together, and I dropped him off at his bookstore that afternoon, and I'm, his bookstore, the, the bookstore that afternoon, I'm driving back to my office, and uh, in the car there, it occurred to me that I was 10 months sober, and I was living exactly the way I'd always lived. I've been sitting in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous for 10 months, hearing you say day after day after day, that I was going to have to change everything about the way I'd been living my life, or I was surely going to drink and die. I guess during those 10 months, I was sort of thinking it didn't apply to me. I mean, I wasn't consciously doing that, but I guess that's what I must have been doing. Um, but I knew that day in the car that I was in deep, deep trouble because, you know, I've never wanted to be this kind of a woman. I always wanted to be a woman people would admire and respect. I never meant to live like this, but I don't, I, not wanting doesn't change anything. I mean, I, this is in fact how I live. I don't get how Alcoholics Anonymous can help me. You, I, I would hear you say in meetings that the answers to all of your problems were in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I swear to you, I would go home at night and go leafing through there looking. I could never find them. They're there. They're there. I was scared to tell my sponsor what I'd done because she'd been so clear in her direction here. But the bottom line is I don't want to drink. And uh, and so, I, of course, now I've done this terrible deed and, and I hardly let my sponsor get through the door of the meeting that night. I'm knocking her down out in the parking lot. i got to talk to you right now. 
And uh, and I told her what I'd done. And she said, you know, I think you've learned a really good lesson here today. I believe you've learned that you're probably not a woman who could cheat on her husband and stay sober. And you did not have to pick up a drink today to learn that. And you don't have to live that way anymore if you don't want to. All right, I just finished telling you. I've never wanted to live that way. I don't get it. I don't see not wanting to live that way doesn't change a thing about the way I live. It doesn't change a thing. Here's what I did. Listen up, because this goes by real fast. A day at a time, I stayed away from that guy. That's it. Day at a time, I didn't call him on the phone. Day at a time, I didn't take his calls when he called me. Day at a time, I didn't drive by that bookstore. Day at a time, when I saw him in meetings, I shook hands with a salt, straight arm, hello, and kept moving. That's it. Stayed away from him. I thought that I should call him and sort of explain what was happening. My sponsor said, no, I think he'll get the idea. <laughs> seemed really cruel to me. Um, but I, I really got the notion that half measures weren't going to get me anything here, you know, that half measures really don't get you 50% or even 25%, that half measures get you zitch, zilch, you know, and so I um, I was afraid not to follow her direction 100%, so I did. I followed it 100%. I stayed away from him. Well, of course the obsession passed. I mean, obsessions always pass, but the really good news for me is I don't live that way anymore. I simply don't live that way anymore. A secretary of my home group, as most of you know, I come from a huge home group, a thousand or more members, and I was secretary of that group a few years ago, and uh, I, I'm not suggesting that everybody in that group likes me necessarily, but I know, uh, as I stood at the podium each week, that there wasn't a single person in that room who was looking at me thinking, oh, yeah, Pat, that she cheats on her husband, you know, because I'm not that woman anymore. I don't live like that any- anymore, and I'm so grateful. I never dreamed when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous that I could, in fact, change the way I live my life, that I could become the kind of a woman that I always wanted to be. Um, my first sponsor drank uh, when I was about a year and a half sober, and... uh I got another sponsor that day. Uh, I got a woman who was sober a long time, and I wanted what she had. She had happy, joyous sobriety. I wasn't even close. I was sober, and I was struggling and uh, uh, unhappy most of the time, with, interspersed with little moments of, of wonderfulness. Um, I remember one time um, having gone on a, a panel with the Dan Lodge and Diana Moore and uh, I forget who else, maybe Joe Sandusky and we had gone to put this little meeting on at some dreary little place, and we came back up, and we were sitting at a coffee shop in Westwood, and uh, we were having pie and coffee or something and talking and laughing, and it occurred to me, I don't even know if I can say this without crying because it was such a powerful moment. It, it occurred to me sitting in that restaurant that I'm sitting at a table with friends, talking and laughing like a regular person. If you were sitting in that restaurant looking over here, you would think I was just a regular person out with friends, and I couldn't believe it. Nothing happened to anybody else at that table. They're just eating their pie and coffee and talking about whatever. I was so overwhelmed with the notion that this was happening to me. I was becoming a part of life. I was starting to actually live life. You know, I couldn't believe it. Um, anyway, I got this new sponsor when I was a year and a half sober, and um, she said, you know, I've watched you whine and snivel about this marriage, and as long as I've, since you walked in the doors, and we're going to just uh, pretend like you're a kind and loving wife. You're just going to act as though you're a kind and loving wife. I want you every day to go home and, and behave the way you think a kind and loving wife should. And it was not an appealing idea. I did not think the marriage could be saved. He didn't like me. I certainly didn't like him. I didn't see the point. I thought I should get out. What I, I used to think like this. I should get out while I'm still young and have my looks. <laughs> she said, just be a good wife. She said, you know, you know, the big book is fairly clear on amends. It, it says in there you can't make amends when, when to do so would injure that person or others. I clearly had a lot of amends to make to, the, to this husband. I cheated on him all the years we were married, uh, you know, except for those last couple when I could hardly get out of that bathrobe. But um, but essentially that's how I lived my, my married life with him. I clearly had major, major amends to make here. But the book is clear. You can't go home and confess infidelities that they don't know about just to sort of clear your own conscience. That's not the way amends work. 
amends are, are putting back together as near as possible to the way it was before you screwed it up, you know, and, and I didn't see how there was any way to make amends for that stuff. I just didn't, I just couldn't see it. And my sponsor said, you know, I believe if you stay there a day at a time and just act as though you're a kind and loving wife, that you can make these amends to him. And if you do have to walk away from this marriage at some point down the road, you'll be able to do it without any guilt because your amends will, in fact, be made to him. I didn't really believe her, but um, but I began doing what she said. She taught me a lot about being a wife. Uh, we'd been married, I don't know, 10 years by then or something, but I didn't. Uh, turned out I didn't know anything about being a wife. Uh, her first direction, I remember, was to every day uh, when I went home from work was to ask him how his day was and look at him and listen while he told me. And I wasn't interested. Uh, but my direction was to, to do it and to listen for a minimum of 10 minutes. And so I kind of checked my watch the first day and asked him. He looked a little surprised that I was asking. And But he told me something about that had happened to him at work. It, it was a fairly meaningless little event story to me because I didn't really know the people he was talking about or, you know. But I, when the 10 minutes were up, I left the room. And, you know, of course, as time went on, uh, his little stories about work became, it just started to have some continuity to them. I started to know which person he was talking about. And, and you know, I became interested. But an interesting thing that night, I was driving to the meeting. Now, we had the same fight that night that we always had about me going to meetings when I left the house that night. But that night, driving to the meeting in the car, I wasn't crying. And I couldn't understand why. Um, I, I understand why today. It's because I was in the solution. You know, the problem hadn't gone away, certainly, and didn't go away for a long time. But I was... I'd finally taken my focus off of the problem, and I was now active in the solution. And I always feel better when I get into the solution. Um, it's like we talked about it with the money. It's it, you know, it's not when you get the money paid off that you get the the the, the, the spiritual benefit. It, it is the process. It's being in the solution of doing it. it you know, you, you start to get that result already. And it, it took me a while though to, to to realize that that's what was happening here. Um, months went by. It, it always sounds real fast when I'm talking about it, but a long time went by and. Um, you know, I learned a lot from my sponsor. I started watching other people, married people in Alcoholics Anonymous and trying to um, take things home that I thought I could do. Uh, some of it was, I knew I couldn't do. And, um, you know, I saw good and bad examples in, in Alcoholics Anonymous as with any group of people. And, and I, I struggled along. And some days I was better than others. And some days I was just terrible. But, I, you know, I, gradually uh, things got better. And uh, one night I was on my knees saying my, my prayers. And my prayers were very short. Um, up to that point, in the in the morning, I would get on my knees and say, Dear God, please help me stay sober today. Amen. And at night, I would get on my knees and say, Dear God, thank you for keeping me sober today. Amen. I did that because my sponsor told me to do it. I believe in God. I've always believed in God, but I never, um, in that year and a half, whatever, two years, whatever it was, I never felt a connection. I never felt like God was in that room, like God was hearing me. I just... Um, I never really consciously thought this stuff through, but I guess if I'd been pressed to, to describe how I felt, it would have just been that, you know, I've been too bad, I guess, and God's probably not interested in my case anymore. I, I don't know that I consciously thought that, but but I, I think that, as well as anything, probably describes how I felt. But I always said the prayers. And the reason I always said the prayers is I knew if I missed a day, it would be that day that my sponsor would say, have you been getting on your knees saying that prayer? And so I always, you know, it's just easier to do this stuff, you know. So I'm on my knees this particular night, and I'm saying that prayer. Dear God, thank you for keeping me sober today. Amen. And I started to get up, and I realized that I was comfortable in that house with that husband. And, you know, it hadn't happened that day. It had already happened. It didn't happen yesterday. I thought, well, it must have been yesterday. No, I was comfortable yesterday, too. I didn't. I don't know when it happened. I missed it. It's just like the biggest problem in my life, and I didn't notice when it went away. This is the most amazing thing to me. Just absolutely the most amazing thing. I cannot believe it. As I talk about it, and it's happened to me again and again in many areas of my life, I got back down on my knees, and I remember I, I thanked God for this feeling. I, I said, you know, I believe if you mean for me to stay married to this man, I could do that, and I could stay sober, and I could have a happy, joyous life. Thank you. Not long after that, we found out that he had cancer. My first reaction was, 
because this is who I am, selfish and self-centered. I wish this would have happened when I hated him. See, right away, I think about me. I, I don't like that about me, but there it is. Um, I told my sponsor what I was thinking, you know, right away. I mean, I just don't carry these guilty sort of feelings around. And, I'm, you know, I, I don't I don't want to pay the price for carrying them around. So I said to my sponsor, I'm really feeling awful. I thought this thought. And she said, well, so what? You know, you're still acting like a kind and loving wife, and that's all that matters. And, and so I just uh, kept doing what I'd been doing. He was sick for a year and a half, and uh, he did die. And uh, it was it was hard. It was a hard year and a half, but it was also the best year and a half of our marriage because of what you taught me. Uh, I was very grateful that I um, had stayed in that marriage when all of my best judgment said that I should leave because I would have missed it, and I would have missed it. I'm very grateful that I was there when he was sick and needed me and that and that I was there in a believable role. In other words, he didn't think that I was there just because he was sick. He knew that I was there because because I loved him because I had been there in a kind and loving manner for, you know, some time before he got sick. So it wasn't like I was just there because I had to take care of him. It was I was there because that's where I wanted to be. Uh when he died, you know, during the time that he was sick, it was hard. I you know, he was in and out of the hospital and I would miss meetings sometimes, you know, being on my way to the hospital and it was just crazy. And I remember one night somebody came up to me at the Wednesday night meeting and they um asked me to go on a panel the next week or something and I I said yes because I'm not stupid. I know what to say, but then I immediately dashed over to my sponsor who's this but by now, I, my second sponsor had moved away, and I had my third sponsor, who has been my sponsor since I'm, I guess, three years sober. And um, so I dashed over to her, and I said, Evelyn, I don't think I should have to go do this. I mean, he's back in the hospital, and God, I just, I seem like, she looked me at it. She's this sweet little older lady. I mean, just so gentle and kind, and just the kind of, she looks like the kind of grandmother everybody wishes they had. And she looked at me, and she said, Pat, you've been taking and taking and taking from AA. It's just time you started giving something back. I was just so crushed. I couldn't believe she was talking to me like this. My husband is dying, and she is so... I couldn't believe it. I was just... Oh, my God, Hasha, but I'll tell you what. It um, it helped me more than anything anybody has probably ever said to me, ever at any time in my sobriety. Um, I just don't see myself clearly. I mean, I always think that there's a good reason for not... Well, of course it's too hard for me to get to meetings now. Of course it's too hard for me to... Well, no, it's not. If I ever needed a meeting, it is when my husband is dying in a hospital. My God, if you ever needed to be close to members of Alcoholics Anonymous, this would certainly be the time, would not you think? Um, it's hard when you're in the middle of it to see it that way, which is why, in fact, I have a sponsor. Um, anyway, he, um, you know, people would, I would sit in that, at the, towards the very end, he was in intensive care, and, and uh, you know, you, you sit in intensive care, and this sort of little community forms with the families of the other any of you who have ever experienced this know what I'm talking about because it's like a different world there, you know. And, and so I'm sitting there and I get to know these other families of other people that are in there. And, and members of Alcoholics Anonymous would drop by the hospital one at a time or two at a time or 20 at a time. And, uh, you know, you'd come and you'd stay for five minutes or three hours or three days, you know. And uh, I remember this uh, woman saying to me uh, one day, boy, you have a lot of friends. And I hadn't even thought about it up to that point, but I sure did. I, you know, I, I surely did have a lot of friends, just in and out, in and out, always there. They would come and pick me up and take me to a meeting and then drop me back off at the hospital. And when he died, I went down to this little chapel and I made some funeral arrangements. And, um, I don't know, I guess a couple of hundred people from Alcoholics Anonymous showed up, took off from work that day and showed up because they knew that, that I would need them, which of course I did. And they didn't know him. You know, none of them had ever met him, and, and yet there they were. And, and I realized sitting in that chapel that day that what my sponsor had promised me had happened. Apparently, I'd made my amends. And I felt no I felt sad, of course, but I felt uh, no guilt. I felt uh, clean and whole and absolutely 100% current. Um, I knew that there was nothing that that hadn't been said or done or, you know, that I had been a good wife to him in, in those latter years. And I, was, I, I can't tell you how grateful I am uh, that I stayed because I would have missed it. I would have missed it. And with my best judgment. Um, I was so sure that my sponsor was wrong. 
about this direction, but she was absolutely right. And not only would I have missed that, but, you know, there's no no question in my mind that, that I'm able to have the kind of a marriage today with Vince that I have because I learned the tools there. Uh, otherwise, I would be practicing on Vince, so to speak, and I'm sure he's grateful that <laughs> I'm a little further along than, than that, you know. Uh, there's no question that these, you know, every direction my sponsor has ever given me has had this sort of, I think of it as the ripple effect, you know, you you take a direction here and, and it helps you tomorrow and then it helps, you know, if you keep doing this stuff, it just continues to affect your life and in this sort of ongoing way, assuming that you stay sober and continue, continue to do these things. Um, I, uh, Vince and I started dating, um, after, after my husband died. We started, I'd known Vince since the time I got sober. Um, he was a friend before I ever dated him, which is a new experience for me. And, uh, we dated and, and became better friends and eventually got married and, and we have a good life, you know. We really have a good life together, as he said. I we love each other and we like each other, and I'd rather spend time with him than, than anybody I know, you know. And and that's a nice thing. I mean, we're married all these years, and I, and I love him more today than I did the day we got married. And that's not me. I burn out, you know. I'm in for the short run here. I I don't do long term stuff much, and uh, this is amazing to me. Uh, we had, you know, uh, he talked about it a little bit last night. We had lots of good years and uh, financially, and we had this great house in Pasadena, and we had all these wonderful AA parties there. Uh, we had several AA weddings at that house, and we used to have a Christmas caroling party every year for about 300 of our most intimate friends, and uh, I have no idea what the neighbors thought about 300 people lined up on their, you know, front lawns. Um, I try to think, you know, if, when I was drinking, what I would have thought if I'd opened my windows and looked out and seen this mob on my... Um, lots and lots and lots of good times, but when, um, when Vince got sick... Um, when he had his first heart attack, I, you know, he's in intensive care, and, and so which meant essentially I was in intensive care there and spending all his time at the hospital. And I, I, uh, I sponsor. I'm grateful that I sponsor a lot of women. And at that, most of the women I sponsored at, at, at that particular time were sober, at least a few years and some many years. And, and so I didn't worry um, much about any of them. I knew that if they couldn't reach me, you know, that they would be fine. I travel some, and so they have, you know, kind of a little network of who they call if they need. But I had just started sponsoring this brand new girl. She was, um, I think, three days sober when Vince um, had his first heart attack and went into the hospital. And I was very concerned about her because she was so brand new sober. So anyway, I'm at the hospital and uh, and I would periodically leave the leave his room and go down the the hall to the phone and to the payphone and I would call our office and I would call home and I'd pick up messages and I would try to return the business calls to keep business going and and return. Most of the calls were. Uh, I remember the first day I did that. I mean, he had barely been in the hospital 20 minutes. It seemed like, and I. I went down to call the office and um, to, to see if there were any messages, and uh, I had this little scrap of paper I was going to write anything down, and there was, I don't know, 27 messages or something from people in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, just thinking about you and prayers and, you know, how we are. I had been on the giving end of that many times. It's, it's a whole different deal when you're on the other end of it, you know, it really is. Anyway, I, I would call, and... Um, and there'd be this, these messages from this newcomer. And, and I mean, she's a newcomer. Now, if you're new, um, please don't get your feelings hurt here. I'm not making fun of this because I've been a newcomer myself. It would be something like this with this, you know, pitiful little newcomer voice. <laughs> Hello, this is Robin. I know you're going through a really bad time yourself, but I'm just crazy. I think I might drink because you fill in the blank. Somebody looked at me funny at work. I mean, it was, a, you know. <laughs> And I think I gotta call her. I mean, I have to call her. And so I, you know, I'd try to track her down and I'd call her and I'd sort of talk her off the ceiling, you know, and get her kind of the mental pat on the back and back out into the life. And then I'd go back in the hospital room and then I'd come down the hall a few hours later and call for mess. And there she'd be, you know, oh, I'm really sorry to bother you again, but, you know, and I'd call her back. And so Vince obviously got better and we're back in meetings and this girl would have been, uh, I think it was, I think she would have been 30 or 35 days sober. I, I don't remember. 
And uh, she called uh, and left a message on my uh, machine that said something like, uh, well, I'd like to thank you very much for your help, but Alcoholics Anonymous is much too hard, and I, I've left. And I thought, you ungrateful so-and-so. <laughs> I stood in that hospital corridor while my husband was lying in the next room, dying practically, calling you back, talking to you, helping you, and you're leaving AA because it's too hard. You, I, I mean, I'm really working myself up in this steam. So I'm like, wait a minute, this girl... Save my life. God gave me this girl for the best possible 35 days out of 21 years he could have picked. The very best 35 days. For five or ten minutes, three or four times a day there, I got to not think about what was happening to me and to Vince. I got to think about Alcoholics Anonymous and where I, who I really am. I got to think about where I come from. I got to think about how good my life is, how grateful I am to live the life that I live. You know, I, I cannot tell you, um, working with others is the key. I mean, I think all the steps, I really believe all the steps are divinely, you know, sort of intertwined. I, I just think they're so, there's no question that God had a hand in this. Uh, but I think, and then I don't think any one step is more important than the others, but I, I think, uh, the twelfth step is the one that allows me to be comfortable through whatever it is that's going on. You know, I absolutely believe that. I'm so grateful that God gave me that girl for those 35 days. She certainly needs to be here. I hope she gets back, but whether she does or not, um, she saved my life for those 35 days. Um, one of the, when we had to, I have no idea how long I've talked, it seems like a lifetime to me, I hope it doesn't to you. Uh, one of the hard things when we started hitting this financial, you know, and Vince, Vince's business sort of went, didn't really go under, it's still going, but it's way below what it was, and he was sick and no money was coming in, and it, it occurred to me that um, perhaps I ought to go get a job. You know, I'd been working for him for, for years, and I loved working for him, and it was great. You know, it was really great. But, but clearly, um, we needed to get some money coming in, and so I thought, well, I, you know, I've been a secretary for years. I hadn't done it in years, and hadn't really planned to do it again. It wasn't really something I wanted to ever go back and do. But when you get right down to it, the only two skills I have are um, secretarial and go-go dancing. And <laughs> I'm fast approaching my 50th birthday. It seemed like secretarial was the way to go. So, you know, I type really fast, and I, I didn't think I'd have any trouble getting a job, but there was a period there where I let technology pass me by. I remember Vince saying when we first went into business, shouldn't we have a computer or something? I said, oh, don't be silly. Little company this size? Nah. Well, <laughs> one of those great decisions in life we make. Now I'm out looking for a job, and they're laughing at me. And this woman said, I don't care if you type 300 words a minute. You don't know anything about computers. You're useless to anybody. So I said, well, okay, clearly i got to learn something about computers here. So I went and signed up for this class. And I went to, it was a night thing, you know, and I went to my first class, and clearly everybody in there already had jobs where they knew everything. I mean, they're talking a language I do not even understand. I do not know what they're talking about. I cried all the way home from that first class. I thought, I'm never going to get this. I must be too old, or I don't know. I, I don't think I can do this. But you've taught me what to do, you know, and I just went back the next week because I know that I made a commitment to do this, and so i got to do it. So I showed up the next week, and something kind of clicked that night where I thought, okay, I get that part. I got that. Maybe I can do this. And, and I, I was about... Uh, I think it was an eight-week class, and I was about six weeks through it, and a, a woman in my home group came up to me and said, are you looking for a job? And I said, yeah, I am. And she said, um, I, I have a, a job. She was the office administrator said, I, in, in Pasadena, not five minutes from where we live. She said, I have a, a job opening available. I think you'd be perfect for it. And, uh, God, what a, what a wonderful thing that was. You know, when you I don't care if it's a real job or not. When you've been working for your husband, it doesn't look that great on a resume. I mean, people think you're just, like, filling it in because you were 
doing nothing. I mean, I really was working for him, but but it just isn't as believable as if you're working for strangers, you know. And, and so here's a woman who already knows me is going to give me a job five minutes. And it's interesting, she only had that job for about six months, you know, just long enough for, for me to get in there. And then she went somewhere else. But So I went to work for that company, and, and I was scared. I didn't think I could do it. I thought I'd have a bad attitude, but I got on my knees that morning and asked God to help me be of service and, and to be of service with a good attitude. And I love my job. It's a great job, and they are crazy about me. They think I'm just the best employee they've ever had. And that's because of what you taught me. I mean, I'm not no better than anybody else there, but I do it um, with a better attitude than anybody else there. And there's no question about it. And I don't always feel that attitude. I just act like I have that attitude. And it serves me very well. Um, we uh, had to get to this, finally to this decision to sell our house. And it was painful. It was hard to get there. I, we kind of thought we were going to live there until we died many, many, many years from now. And uh, and it was hard, but, you know, clearly it was the, what we were going to have to do. And um, I thought, you know, I'm going to miss this house so much, and it turns out I don't miss it at all because what I what was wonderful about that house were all those things I just mentioned, these wonderful AA parties that went on there, these weddings, these um, these caroling parties, these, these feelings. I have these wonderful memories of, of you know, little vignettes of, of p- certain conversations or certain uh, gatherings that went on there that, that will live forever in here. The, one of the last parties we had there was a, a 30-year party for our friend Chuck, 30-year sobriety party. And, um, you know, there were hundreds of people there, and uh, it was late in the afternoon. People were starting to leave, and what was left was essentially just, you know, our closest friends, people that I've known for 20 years. And, and uh, I was standing on my back porch. It was one of those perfect Southern California days where the sky is clear. We get about two a year, you know, and the sky was clear, and the weather was perfect, and the mountains there. And these people that I love, um, you know, there in the yard, and there had been a bagpiper there earlier in the day, and he was leaving, and apparently his car was parked a couple blocks away because he was walking to his car, and he was playing Amazing Grace. I can't even say it. I was so um, grateful to be who I am, you know, to be where I am, to have had. The way I look at that house is, you know, it's like God gave it to us to take care of for those years, and, and um it was sort of like the group's house. I mean, we got to pay for it, but but it was like it was like the Pacific Group's house. You know, we got they, everybody got to use it and have these wonderful, wonderful um, memories out of that place. I'm so grateful that we had the opportunity to do that, and I don't miss it one little bit. I really don't, and that's the most amazing thing to me. Um, if you're new, I want to welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I want to tell you that this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. My life is so good. It's not today exactly the way I would have it be, you know, uh, uh, but. I what I always always have had uh, good times bad times is hope because that's what you gave me here you gave me that the very first night that very first night when I sat and listened to Norm Alpy talk I got hope I got hope that no matter what was going on in my life it could get better I could be like that guy standing up there you know and and here I am 21 and a half years later my life is good uh, I feel good about myself I love the way I live my life I love my husband um, and I love being sober thank you very much.